This is the Data Science Conversations podcast with Damien Dehan and Dr. Philip Diesinger. We feature cutting-edge data science and AI research from the world's leading academic minds and industry practitioners, so you can expand your knowledge and grow your career. This podcast is sponsored by Data Science Talent, the data science recruitment experts. Welcome to the Data Science Conversations podcast. My name is Damien Dehan, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Philip Diesinger. Joining us today is Professor Maurizio Porfiri to talk about his latest academic research, which is using data science to uncover why sales of guns in the USA actually increase after a mass shooting event. It's extremely important work with some surprising conclusions. By way of background, Maurizio conducts and supervises research on complex systems with applications from mechanics to behavior, public health, and robotics. He's an institute professor at New York University's Tandon School of Engineering, and additionally, he has appointments at the Center for Urban Science and Progress and the Departments of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering biomedical engineering, and civil and urban engineering. Maurizio received a master's and PhD degrees in engineering mechanics from Virginia Tech, also a laureate in electrical engineering with honors, and a PhD in theoretical and applied mechanics in 2001 and 2005, respectively. He's been on the faculty of the Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department since 2006, when he founded the Dynamical Systems Laboratory. Maurizio is the author of more than 350 journal publications, including papers in Nature, Nature Human Behavior, and Physical Review Letters. He has many, many significant career recognitions, which include being listed in the Brilliant 10 list of Popular Science in 2010, the National Science Foundation Career Award, and the Research Excellence Award from NYU Tandon School of Engineering. His research has been heavily featured in major media outlets such as CNN, NPR, The Scientific American, and The Discovery Channel. We're very excited to have you here today, Maurizio. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for the introduction. Fantastic. And... Just to get us going, could you tell us what was it initially that motivated you to dedicate your research to the field of complex systems? Yes. So complex systems, it's a new field, but it's an old field. It's something extremely fascinating because it combines many different disciplines and it requires the development of new mathematical techniques to uncover emergent behavior that is the result of interactions between many, many, many agents. We have seen the Nobel laureate this year, for example, Professor Parisi, being one of the pioneers in this field. He did amazing work that touched on climate, quantum mechanics, collective behavior. There are many analogies between these fields, and complex systems theory help us link in this area and providing somehow a unifying framework to understand the inner workings of so different systems. 
Okay, great. And what then about that field? How did you go from there to doing research into guns and mass shootings? That's uh, more of uh, a personal choice. When I started my career, I primarily have been focusing on understanding uh, uh, collective dynamics in animal groups, trying to understand interactions between living agents, let them be humans, let them be fish or uh, other animals that display these beautiful emergent patterns. More lately, I discovered that uh, similar relationships can arise in very different contexts related to public health. For example, I've been looking at diffusion of policies in the United States, understanding, for example, how laws related to alcohol have been diffused throughout the country, and uh, Something uh, that came about uh, really as a personal interest uh, was uh, trying to understand uh, the emergence of patterns underlying uh, sales of guns. I had graduated from Virginia Tech, which uh, unfortunately came to fame uh, about uh, yes, 14 years ago due to tremendous mass shooting that has actually happened in the building where I was studying. That was the year before I left the university. One of my committee members lost his life uh, to protect his students. And uh, that shook us very, very much. So over the years, it's adding uh, gun violence has always attracted uh, my interest. Over the years, uh, I started to think that perhaps I could do something. And uh, four years ago, I started this journey trying to see what I could do to help the field and bring uh, techniques from other areas in collective dynamics to understand uh, the phenomenon of um, gun violence. Thank you, Maurizio, for sharing that uh, very personal story and for then uh, going on to, to really make a contribution in this field. Uh, you have a very interesting publication in Nature Human Behavior in 2019 on gun violence, analyzing the root causes, as you had already said. Can you talk us through what are the kinds of questions that you set out to answer with the data? Initially, we started looking at uh, the relationship between the occurrence of mass shootings and the purchase of guns. So it has been widely documented in the literature that uh, there is an uptick of sales right after a mass shooting. If you indeed plot the data, you will find a quite strong correlation. So you will find that there are more guns sold after a mass shooting than in times where mass shootings are less frequent. And therefore, on the basis of these correlations, there have been a general sense that people buy guns because they fear for themselves. So what we try to do is uh, applying some techniques from different fields to understand if this correlation would beget somehow a form of causation or if it would be simply a correlation between two variables, which we know may not be as indicative of a causal mechanism. So the journey that we started back then was uh, to understand if there was some mediating variable that would indeed underlie the correlation between sales and violence. So it, it was clear that there was correlation in the data, but it was not clear whether it was causality, right? Can you uh, help us understand a little bit better what kind of data you used for this analysis? Yeah, so if I 
if I recall correctly, you had three uh, very key data sets uh, that you based your analysis on. With respect to the mass shootings, believe it or not, we still don't have a universal definition. So we need to specify criteria for identifying a mass shooting. So what we did, we utilized a data set from Mother Jones. It's quite popular in the field and refers to what we call public mass shootings, which are events that are happening in a public space without an underlying relationship of blood. Like there is no family relationship between the shooters and the victims. There are more than four casualties in the event. And there is no relationship with criminality. It's not a gang-related crime. It's what we really define as those uh, impossible-to-explain events, so to speak. We collected data from 1999 to 2017. We have data that, in principle, are at a daily resolution because we know the day at which the mass shooting has happened. We... Uh, cleaned the data a little bit, so we took this uh, Mother Jones data, we verified one by one, and ultimately we collected uh, a clean data set with uh, the number of fatalities, the day they happened, and we utilized this as uh, the mass shooting time series. So this, I think, is pretty standard and uh, well understood. What instead is uh, more uh, questionable, or at least... Uh, uh, more interesting is the gun ownership dataset. We don't have a gun ownership dataset, that's the reality. We do not know where guns are, we do not know when they are bought, we just have proxies. We can have a bunch of proxies that can be utilized to estimate sales. The proxy that we utilized is the number of background checks background check have been active only since 99. So we have about 20 years, little shy than that. So when you go to buy a gun, you will have a background check. From the background check, I can understand if there was a sale in a particular state. I don't have more information at the state level. And the data back then was at a monthly time resolution. This is a proxy is not perfect at all because I can do a background check and then do not get the gun. I may just say I don't want the gun or the background check may fail or I can get a gun through another means. I can get it even illegally. But even if I want it legally, I can get it as a gift. I can get it buying it a fair. So there are many other ways that are not counted in the background check. So we need to take with a grain of salt is a proxy. So based on these two data set, the gun ownership through background checks at a monthly resolution, and the other is mass shooting from Mother Jones. We can run a simple correlation analysis and we discover a strong relationship between the two variables. We have that there are more sales when there is a mass shooting. So the data of mass shooting, I mean, on a monthly resolution are a bunch of zero, and then sometimes there is an event, sometimes there are more than one event. There are several incidents on a yearly basis. If I'm not mistaken, the number of events that we looked at was less than 100, somewhere on the order of 70. So over 20 years, you can do the math. Instead, the background check time series is very rich and very interesting. 
On a monthly resolution, what you observe is a strong seasonality with two peaks during the year, the beginning of spring, March or April, and the other peak is around November, December. Uh, why there are these two peaks? We have a couple of theories why people are buying guns more in these two specific times. More likely, there are more sales in around Christmas because of gifts, and with respect to the April-March timeline, it is likely related to the tax rebate. So in the US, after completing the tax cycle, you may get some money back if you overpaid, and a typical investment is to buy a gun with that extra check that you get. Then the data is absolutely not stationary on average. We observe a quite strong trend upward. So we have more and more guns which are coming into the country. There is a clear trend uh, to give some sense. If I estimate from the background check how many guns are coming to the country, I can tell you that a couple of years back we reached a number of guns that have passed the number of people in the US. The number is going up and up and up. The trend is upward. Uh, how did you process this data to deal with these effects that are in there? These techniques rely on stationarity of the time series. So while correlation you can do for variables that are going upward, if you want to pick up a causal link, then you want to be sure that you just are not relating to trends. So what we needed to do is, first of all, clean the data and make sure it will be stationary. We have done this in two consecutive steps. First of all, we removed the trend. So we identified a trend in the data and we simply eliminated it and obtained a data set that didn't have any trend, but still a seasonality effect. And then we utilize a technique which is called Tramosits that is heavily used in econometrics to filter out the seasonal effect. So at the end, we obtain a time series that didn't have a trend and didn't have a seasonality. And we verified with a simple statistical test with a Dicky Fuller that at the end, uh, we had a stationary time series. And working with the test stationary time series, we could understand if the local upticks the local changes in sales would indeed relate to mass shootings or to something else, which is indeed at the very heart of the questions we want to address. Very good. Yeah. So in addition to the mass shootings event data and the background checks data, you had also a third data set, uh, which is the media output that was generated at the time. Yeah. Can you talk us through how you measured that, how you quantified that? Now, this is the key part of the research. So we have these two variables and we want to understand if there is something that underlies the relationship between the two of them. So what we did, we as a first step, we tried to uh, quantify the media coverage about uh, the particular events. We went uh, on a database that is called ProQuest and that is routinely used by journalists to look at different pieces and we can get information about uh, articles published about specific topics. On ProQuest, we can select the outlet 
in which we want the publication to happen. And what we did, we looked at Washington Post and New York Times. We looked for three specific topics. Articles that discuss shootings, excluding any discussion on regulation. Second topic, shootings and regulation. And then third topic, unemployment. And what we tried to do was to capture three phenomena. One was how media cover the act itself. Then second, how media covers the discussion that typically follows a mass shooting, which entails the possibility of coming up with new regulation, regulation that may curtail access to guns. And then the third one was a time series that instead would be some type of control, telling us what is the level of unemployment in the country. Unemployment is important because it tends to be related to social unrest. So somehow telling you that a gun can be helpful if you want to protect yourself if the economy goes down and somehow the situation gets really bad. Right, that's super interesting. So you basically then had uh, these three data sources, basically background checks, events, and also media output that you quantified, like you just described. Yeah, and you already mentioned that there are correlations in there, of course. Yeah, but the question is, is there also causation in the data? Yeah, and this is always a very hard question to answer. Uh, can you talk us through the thinking process that you had uh, when you when you approached this analysis and what kind of analytical tools you eventually choose for this um, task? We have to be very, very specific on what type of causality we want to look at, because uh, this is something where uh, there are very, very strong opinions. And indeed, uh, it's always a tough uh, argument because we don't have a manipulation of the system. It's not that I can manipulate the system and pick up uh, the specific effect of one variable on another one. What I am doing, I'm doing an observation. And then from the observation, I'm trying to figure it out if one variable has some predictive effect on some other variable. So the specific notion of causality we look at is within the notion of Wiener-Granger causality. Specifically, what we try to do is the following. Very simply, let's take two time series and we want to argue that one variable has a causal effect on the other variable. How do we check it? What we do is we measure the entropy of the variables. The entropy is a measure of the degree of uncertainty. So, loosely speaking, what we try to do is we are trying to understand if the uncertainty in the prediction of the future of the effect variable is reduced by adding additional knowledge regarding the present of the causal variable. Yeah, so you're basically you're, you're dealing with time series data yeah? and you're looking if you can predict a given time series by using the historic data from a different time series. Right, and that's kind of your uh, criteria for causality in this sense. Yeah. You are perfectly right. The prediction that we make is a prediction in a statistical sense in which we are trying to minimize 
the uncertainty. So that's what we try to do. So we work with this notion of entropy. In order for everything to work, we need to have stationary time series. Because mathematically, practically, we will be computing a bunch of probability mass functions. So we must be sure that what has happened in 2015 is reminiscent of what is happening in 2017. If instead everything keeps changing every month, then you are in a very tough spot because you cannot utilize your past data or your present data to estimate the underlying probability mass functions. What we do in this study, we have multiple time series. So it's really important that we consider the existence of other time series because you may end up with phenomena that are pretty bad, like a common driver. So hypothetically, you can have a causal variable which influences both two effect variables and then you look at interaction between the two effects and they look like interacting with each other. But in reality, they are not because they are under a common driver. So what we need to do when we perform our analysis, we apply something a little different that we call conditional transfer entropy. So that when you do the computation, you always account for the remaining variable. So I have the cause, the effect, and the rest of the world that is accessible to us at least. So I perform the analysis by controlling for time variations of the other variable. So what I do now, I compute a bunch of transfer entropies between all pairs of variables, conditioning on what is left. Uh, we have a statistical test that can help us understand if the interaction that I am determining are different than chance. Once I recognize those that are significant, I do get an understanding of the causal relationships underlying my variables. We have very, very little uh, data. So if you follow the story from the beginning, we have 18 years, 12 uh, months per year is really not that much. So in principle, you want to do many, many, many things, but in reality, you are bound on the way you have to perform the analysis. So there are a few technical details that you may be interested in learning through the paper, which is how we consolidate the information about the time series in a small number of variables that can be estimated through the process. So we cannot, uh, for example, say, what is the exact value of the sale? We will only be able to say sales are going up, sales are going down. Media, media is going up, media is going down. So we simplify the time series into a sequence of symbols that are telling about increase or decrease and then perform the analysis on these binary time series. And that helps quite a bit because we can actually perform something that is statistically robust with a data set that is not as resolved in time as one may wish. What are the outcomes of this? What did you learn from it? So the first thing that we learn, which is the beautiful one, I think, is that if you perform the analysis by accounting for media coverage on firearm regulation, then we observe that there is a causal relationship from this particular media source and the background check. But we don't discover any effect of neither media on shooting 
nor median unemployment, nor mass shootings on background checks. So the theory that people buy guns because of self-protection may not be as strong as we were thinking at the very beginning. And the analysis that we conducted suggests a different story. People may be buying guns because they fear that regulations may come up and they will not be able to buy guns in the future again. So it is not fear of being a victim, but it is fear of not being a buyer in the next future. So it's a very different mechanism that the data science analysis suggests with respect to what would have been our initial intuition. So what you're saying is it's really consumer behavioral driven rather than uh, obviously a threat to personal safety. What do you think are the implications for this for policymakers of this finding? I think uh, it is more viable to conduct an analysis at a state level because policies are very, very different depending on the states and the appetite for guns is also very different depending on the state and the response of the state is also different depending on a variety of factors, let them be ideological, geographical, but every state is different. That's another interesting finding of our paper that I'm happy to talk about. How did you quantify the legal restrictiveness in the individual states? What we went on doing next was trying to understand if states behave like one or if there are differences between states. What we thought was that if the hypothesis that you buy guns because you fear you cannot buy again, then we would expect that in states which are very, very, very strict, the effect will be small. Because if I have already tons of laws that challenge my ability to buy, then you know what? If they come up with an extra law, let it be. I still cannot buy, so I won't be able to buy later. But instead, if I am living in a state which has few regulation, then if they come up with new ones, I may not be able to buy. So what we expected is that the values of the transfer entropy and the entire analysis would be mediated by what we call the legal restrictiveness of the particular state. So what we did is we counted the proportion of laws related to firearm safety that were active in each of the 50 states out of a total of 133, And based on that, we ranked the states and we went from the strictest to the loosest. And there is quite a bit of variation. Interestingly, the variation is not dynamic in the sense that a state that 10 years ago tended to be loose in terms of regulation is still loose. States that are very strict remain to be strict. There is a, quite a bit of variation. You have huge differences, for example, between a state like Massachusetts, really, really strict, and another state like Vermont with many less regulations. And what we were able to uncover is that there is a strong effect of the law restrictiveness. So indeed, in the states in which you have more laws, you have a more restrictive environment, you have a weaker effect of media coverage on regulations on the sale. 
and vice versa in states which are looser in terms of regulation you have a much stronger effect so from the policy making point of view that one is an indication that different policies affect somehow how people respond to mass shootings and how they act in terms of buying guns that's super interesting yeah how did you quantify the restrictiveness of the laws did you categorize it or how do you measure it Yes, so we looked at an existing database called the State Firearm Laws Project, in which the, um, all these regulations are spelled out and we identified those that pertain to safety. And there is a group of them, and this has been done by other researchers. And then we went state by state and counted which ones of these uh, laws were active in that particular state. So each state will have a, basically a score from zero to one. One is if they have the entire deck of laws. Zero if they adopted none. You talked us about this analysis already uh, with the, the, the state uh, restrictiveness, uh, legal restrictiveness. Um, one question, would it be possible or would it make sense to also consider uh, for the events data set a weight factor And not just a binary variable. Yeah. So as a weight factor, you could think of the fatalities, for instance, or something like that, or people being wounded. Uh, would that contribute to the analysis? Did you consider something like that? We didn't consider it, given that we have only a couple of hundred data points. We didn't have the luxury of being able to resolve this detail, but I do think it's very important. And this is something that indeed we are looking at it now with uh, the new data set that has been released by the FBI related to the background checks, where now we are able to get daily resolution. So now that I get a much better time series of thousands of samples, I am starting to look into exactly what you are describing. Anecdotally, uh, for example, the largest peak in the media output on coverage, if I'm not mistaken, is exactly in correspondence of the Sandy Hook massacre, which has involved young children in Connecticut. Each event is different to some extent, not only in the severity of the event itself, but also in the echo they receive in the media and the discussion they trigger. So I do believe that it's important to somehow account for more variables that entail, for example, the location of the event, understanding why, what were the drivers of the shooter, understanding how many weapons did the shooter carry, did he want to kill many more people than what he was able to do, accounting for many, many more variables to describe the shooting accident can actually help understand more dynamics of the process. But for now, the analysis that we have is only zero one happened or didn't happen in a month. And it showed already a lot of insights. So that's very successfully done, very well done. Um, any limitations? So I, you already started uh, giving a little bit of perspective on next steps, basically what you're still working on and so on. Uh, any limitations of the analysis that you would still want to work on? Yeah, there are uh, so many, so many limitations. First of all, ownership. We are really not counting uh, all the guns that are out there. So we need to do better than this. So we started working uh, on other metrics of uh, gun prevalence based on, for example, the suicide with a firearm 
that is another proxy of gun prevalence. Is it great? Maybe not. So what we have been trying to do is looking at multiple proxies and trying to construct a model that can help us predict the number of guns. With that, we can have better insight and use it for better estimating ownership. So this is work in progress. Then the media. Media we consider only two venues in the study. Somebody can argue that the venues are also not covering the broad political range of opinions in the US. We have done some work in this direction in our following publication where we have looked at different media sources like the Chicago Tribune, Picayune in New Orleans. We have picked new outlets. So we have done something in that direction. Is it perfect? Certainly not. Because when you speak of media, media is what I give you. It's not what you process. So I believe that something important for us to do in the future is also looking at Twitter data. That can be quite important because it can really help us understanding the sentiment of people toward guns. When I speak of media coverage, is we receiving information. And many times also, we receive information through other means, through social media. So we really need to go in that direction. I want to understand it, and we need to work to get uh, this additional data set. Analysis. Analysis, we were only able to do binary variable, a monthly resolution, we should do much, much better. So we are getting data now at a daily resolution that should help uh, utilizing most variables at the same time, exploring other confounding effects, looking at what you described before, which is a more detailed representation of the mass shooting. Also, we want to catalog the media depending on their audience. So we have a lot of work ahead. Um, so Maurizio, what other uh, final uh, comments or thoughts would you uh, like to leave with us regarding uh, your work? Mass shootings are very rare extreme events that cover a very, very small fraction of the lives that are lost to gun violence every year. Roughly, we are talking about 0.1%. So we shouldn't be looking only at mass shootings as an outcome of uh, firearm violence. And indeed, uh, the work that we are trying to do now brings many, many more variables. We are looking at uh, suicides, we are looking at homicides, we are focusing on uh, domestic violence, we are looking at uh, gangs as well. So we want to get a much, much bigger picture of uh, the outcomes of uh, firearm-related violence. So that, I think, is really, really important. So mass shootings are um, events that trigger a profound discussion because uh, they are gruesome, they are unexpected, very difficult to explain. But uh, they are the tip of the iceberg and there is a much more, uh, I mean, not, not more profound, but there is a baseline problem that is losing lives to firearm violence. And that is something that we would like to understand, we would like to discuss. So some of the work that we are doing now is indeed looking at this more complex firearm ecosystem with all its pieces, prevalence, violence, regulation. We, are, we have been fortunate to receive support from the National Science Foundation and we have put together 
a very strong team with expertise in human behavior, uh, policy making, public health, uh, applied mathematics, data science. And we are trying to look at these three different scales. We look at the micro scale, which is how individual behave and what are individual responses to viral violence, viral prevalence, and any firearm-related stimuli. So we want to do the Twitter study, we want to do a serious psychological investigation of individual behavior. Then we have the mesoscale, which is the state level. So how a state respond, what are policies enacted in a state, how, a, how state coordinate in the response to firearm violence. And last, the nationwide response, which is how, as a nation, we are dealing with firearm violence. And this one is mainly my piece of work, which is looking at this causal relationship. But we would like to patch all these pieces together and being able to offer this multi-scale understanding of firearm violence, from the driver to ultimately the outcome. Great. Thanks, Maurizio. It's uh, absolutely inspiring and very, very important work that you're doing because it is such a huge, huge problem. So I can congratulate you on that. Thank you. I am very proud of this work because it uses data science without any agenda. So when we looked at data, we didn't have a desire to explore a relationship versus another one. We objectively look at the dataset applied techniques that are from our field to try to understand what could be potential mechanisms explaining the data. I believe that this is extremely important because it provides policymakers of whatever political orientation they're from with objective answers to questions and scientifically grounded understanding of a problem so that they can make their decision with the best knowledge on what are consequences. I think this is really, really important and it's key to our work. And if somebody wants to take a look at the data or maybe your analysis or the paper, where can they find the materials? So uh, we have a GitHub repository from my lab, so they can just search the GitHub of the Dynamical Systems Labs at NYU and they can get the entire data set. All the data that we analyzed are available there. They are all clearly organized with files that can help going through them. And then we also have the codes. Whatever codes we utilize for performing the transfer entropy analysis is available on the GitHub. Uh, we have a couple of papers, which uh, I believe could be a good read. One is uh, a paper in 2019 in Nature Human Behavior entitled Media Coverage and Firearm Acquisition in the Aftermath of a Mass Shooting. And the second paper, which I also recommend as a read, is Self-Protection versus Fear of Stricter Firearm Regulations, Examining the Drivers of Firearm Acquisitions in the Aftermath of a Mass Shooting. And this other paper is in Patterns. The paper, I believe, complement each other with different techniques, looking at national and more granular state-level analysis and overall answering the questions we have been talking about 
you will be able to find the links to both of those papers, the data sets and the GitHub repository in the show notes and on our website at datascienceconversations.com. And that sadly brings today's episode to a close. A really, really fascinating conversation. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, then I should just let you know that our next show will feature another one of NYU's finest academics, where we will be talking about AI ethics and in particular how companies are now using AI for hiring employees. But for today, Maurizio, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It was a really superb conversation. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you also to my co-host, Philip Diesinger, and of course to you for listening. We look forward to having you with us on the next episode.